You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, New Albany. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you. My name is Jonah. I'm I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, Our mission at Sojourn is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, to build them up as his church and send them to follow him in his world. And I'm thankful that you're here to be a part of that with us. Um, I fell in love with the Toyota Land Cruiser in the year of our Lord, 2006. Um, I was I was working three jobs. Uh, life was hard. I was broke, but the internet worked. 2006 was right. If if you remember way way back then, when like high speed internet was just everywhere then, and Wi-Fi was everywhere, and so one of my jobs afforded me some time on the internet. And there on the internet, I discovered the FJ60 model Land Cruiser, uh, built in the the mid 80s. Uh, it took me 12 years of searching and saving, but I finally found one that I could, I could at least justify buying. I'm not sure I could afford it, but I could, I justified buying it, if you know the difference. So I bought this off the internet, naturally off of a Land Cruiser forum. I flew to Colorado Springs. This was a 1985 Toyota Land Cruiser FJ60 with a cool 380,000 miles on it. The plan was to fly to Colorado Springs and drive it home. Uh, Just to be clear, the Toyota Land Cruiser FJ60 is the greatest vehicle ever made, so I had no doubts about the reliability, about whether or not it would make it back home. Um, if you don't know much about cars, 
which is fine, I suppose. Um, you should know that this car has no airbags. Uh, this car has no anti-lock brakes. Um, it had rust everywhere, the particular one that I bought, but not on the frame, which is important, but it had rust everywhere on the body. I remember asking the guy that sold it to me. Um, it was his family car. He grew up on a vineyard in Western Colorado, and this was the vineyard truck. They'd had it since new. And I was like, should I bring anything with me just in case? And he started listing all of these parts and hoses. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it. Um, it was a it was a 30-year-old vehicle. It was slow, it rattled. Uh, I'd never driven anything like it. The steering wheel was more of like an estimator. You know, was, you, you ever see in TV when people pretend like they're driving and they, they drive like this? The, the FJ60, you could drive like this and just go perfectly straight down the road. It's, I'm just saying it's probably not like the car you drove in this morning. Um, I also learned pretty quickly in the drive that the gas gauge was an estimate as well. Um, because when you're driving, it just kind of sat there ticking. And it had a 24, I'm, the first time I filled up, it had a 24 gallon tank. First time I filled up, the, the line, whatever, the gauge was pegged to E, and I filled it up and it took 17 gallons of gas. And I was like, I had seven more gallons in this thing? Which makes for a risky proposition. <clears throat> That doesn't give you much range. This thing got about nine miles to the gallon uh, around town, uh, a real strong 13 on the highway. Um, so that goes quick. And it's a scary thing when your gas goes quick and your gauge isn't exactly precise. But it was fun to stop for gas so often, particularly on this first drive. I got, I got some pictures for you. Here's where I picked it up. Look at that thing. Are you kidding me? That is a 1985 Toyota Land Cruiser FJ60 in a Moe's parking lot outside of Colorado Springs. You can see mountains in the background. That's not Floyd's Knobs. That's actual mountains. Uh, and I guess here's another, you know, just randomly stop for coffee. Why? Because I'm in an FJ60 and there's mountains. I'm going to take a picture. Um, here's I found some windmills. I was taking back roads because I'm like, I don't even think this is meant for highways. Uh, so anyway, three quarters of the way in to this drive, which is about 1,200 miles. It's not a short drive by any means. Three quarters of the way in, something unexpected happened. I believe it's called a blizzard. <laughs> um, I, I went from blue skies and easy driving to snow, which I was kind of excited about. The, the FJ60 was meant to be what's called an overlanding rig. So it's like I'm going to drive across South Africa and not be around humans for three months and I need to make sure I can get back in time. So I'm like, this is what this car is built for. Um, so I stopped, here's a picture of right at the start of the, the blizzard. I stopped and took, I think we have another one. Um, so that's like a big gas station parking lot, right? That's plowed and I, I don't know if you can tell, there's white flecks everywhere. It was, it was a winter wonderland. Uh, and shortly, when I got back on the highway from this, pit stop, because I had to fill up in gas, because I'd need gas again in you know, like another 45 minutes or so. Um, I, I suddenly went from like a pleasant winter snow to, I'm, I'm going to try real hard not to exaggerate here, I would estimate about three feet of snow on the highway. Uh, part of the reason I stopped here is I had to figure out how to get this thing in four-wheel drive. Uh, I had a thing called locking hubs. Anybody remember locking hubs? Any, anybody? My gray hairs? Come on now. Locking hubs. So you got to get out of the car. You got to turn this thing on the wheels. Then you get in, and it was a manual transmission. And you, had, you guys don't care. I had to figure out how to put it in four-wheel drive. So I got in four-wheel drive, and I get back on the highway, and there's three feet of snow. And initially, it was a little bit cool. 
because I'm like off-roading down the highway in my 1985 FJ60 Land Cruiser. But then I realized that not, o- not only is, you know, the steering wheel off and the, the gas gauge is off, but also my windshield wipers didn't really work. Uh, so my windshield wipers start freezing, my windshield starts freezing, the defroster was trying hard, and then it turned into this like post-apocalyptic scene because there were just Toyota Siennas and Corollas and Civics, just you know, normal people cars just sprawled all over the highway. Uh, it looked like bombs had gone off and just people either gave up or had spun out. And there I am, you know, going 35 miles an hour, bouncing around the highway in my 1985 FJ60 Land Cruiser in 30 feet of snow. I was laughing at all of these cars. I was laughing at the situation. And I mean, really by laughing, I mean utterly terrified. <laughs> I looked down at my gas gauge shortly. It felt short, but I don't know how long it was. And uh, there was the gas gauge pegged to E. I had somewhere between 10 and 50 miles of gas left. I was somewhere in Western Kentucky. Um, I didn't know how much gas I had and I didn't know where I was precisely. So I pulled over on the side of the highway, which didn't matter because nobody else but me was driving. And I looked at my phone, and I saw that I could get off at this next exit and drive roughly eight miles to Nowheresville, Kentucky, and allegedly there was a gas station there. Or I could drive 40 miles further down 64 and get to a pilot. You know, pilot gas station? So, you know, they were probably open. I didn't know if I had 40 miles of gas in my tank, and I but I didn't know if Nowheresville, Kentucky's gas station would be open in weather like this. So I prayed up, got off the exit, and decided I was going to Nowheresville. Uh, turns out the roads to Nowheresville were worse than the highway <laughs> that was maintained by the state. So I continued off-roading. Um, I try to imagine frozen windshield, frozen wipers, and I'm clutching my steering wheel, peering out like this. I had visions in my mind of getting in a wreck and dying with my hands frozen to the steering wheel. And then at my funeral, they were like, this idiot had to buy, orphaned his children because he had to buy a 30-year-old idiot car and just, you know, what have I done? And, And I remember so vividly, this road, you know, Kentucky roads and Indiana roads where it's like two lanes and then fields, two lanes, ditch, fields. That's what I'm driving through. And I was like, I'm going to die in a soybean field frozen in my car. Um, And I came across a bend and up a hill. And then way off in the distance, I saw an orange glow of a shell station. And you guys, I can't tell you how safe I felt when I saw the orange glow of the gas station. We made it. I made it to the gas station. Filled up. Wiped down my windshield. The young man working there came out and was like, is that a Land Cruiser? And I was like, it's a Land Cruiser. Yeah, we made it. This story for me has become a bit of a parable for my life over the last few years. Um, And maybe there's parts of it that you you can relate to. Something excited, maybe something that you've wanted quickly turns into something terrifying. You know, at times on that drive, I felt so foolish. Um, something good real quickly became 
something anxious and uncertain. Has your job ever felt that way? Maybe your, your marriage has felt that way. Maybe you've recently brought a child home. And you know all the good things you're supposed to feel about it, and you feel all these anxieties, or you're depressed, and then you feel guilty because children are supposed to be a blessing, and you get in all these... Maybe there's some of this that you can relate to. These kinds of emotions of anxiety, of uncertainty, of depression, of, of fear... I think in a lot of ways, these are the emotions of Advent. These are the fears of the Advent season, longing, uncertainty, fear. But I, I want you to know this morning, um, if you're feeling any of that, or if you felt any of that over the last two years, this is nothing new. If you, if you walk with me through one of the most famous passages about the promise of Advent, you'll see this. The, the passage that Libby read for us, in verse 2, it, it says, the people who walk in darkness. There's a promise in this passage being made to people who walk in darkness. And some of you need to know this morning that the Bible is not a book about heroes. The Bible is not a, a book about great faith or blue skies. The Bible is a book about people who walk in darkness. Here it's talking about a people lost and confused. These people who had a promised king who turned out to be an adulterer and a murderer. Like their king, the people of God in these days chose their own way of life. Verse 1, it speaks of Zebulun and Naphtali, which doesn't mean much to you or me. Um, but that's, that's where Israel's conquest at the hands of the Assyrians began. Zebulun and Naphtali is when their hopes of this beautiful, perfect promised land were crushed. This darkness that we walk in, it's a darkness of, of our own making. Whether it's fearing you're going to die because you made a foolish vehicle position, decision, or whether you've turned from the Lord and your promised people are in ruin. The Bible is a book for people who choose their own way, and who walk in darkness. Put it, maybe put it a little bit more simply, it's a book for people like you and people like me. And I think one of the most significant invitations of Advent is we have this period of weeks to set aside, to create some space to acknowledge the darkness in our life. The darkness that we've brought in, but also the, the darkness others have brought to you. These weeks can be for us a gift of space to be honest about, what do I mean by darkness? I mean, be honest about your losses. Be honest about your hurts. Be honest about your disappointments. Because the gift of doing so prepares us for the promise that follows. Verse 2 continues, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. A light yet shines in the darkness like the warm glow of a gas station in a blizzard. Listen now to what this light brings with it, verses 4 through 5. You will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior 
and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for fire. These are particular promises to a particular group of people, people familiar with slavery. This isn't an, an abstract concept for them. This isn't a biblical metaphor. It's talking about he will release you from your actual slavery. These are people familiar with oppression, people familiar with doing laundry that's filled with clothes, stained with blood because their soldiers had come back from war. If you're unfamiliar with this story, you may be wondering how such promises could be fulfilled. How will God break the oppressor's rod? How will wars and oppression cease? Most of us today, if we're being honest, would expect oppression to end and wars to cease through overwhelming firepower. A stronger force will come and suppress the oppressor. In God's economy, such promises will be filled in a most unexpected way. Verse 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. Could you imagine how confusing these words might feel if you were someone who had lived under generations of slavery, generations of violence, generations of oppression, and then a prophet says, don't worry, a light shines in the darkness. A baby boy will be given to you. How can a child possibly be lighten the darkness or the bringer of such hope? The simplest way to answer that question is to answer it the way the scriptures answer it, particularly this text citing the names of this child. The names show us how far the promise extends even if you've never been enslaved, even if you've never fought in a war, the names of this promised child reveal he is the hope of all who walk in darkness. So first, verse 6 says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And per perhaps reading this, you think, man, he'll be a great therapist or he'll be a great listener, um, we might rightly translate this title a wonder of a counselor, but even that doesn't quite get to it. Something interesting, uh, Israel, in the Hebrew language, the Old Testament here, they don't really have a concept of the supernatural. God was present in everything and everywhere. And so wonderful here is the closest idea that they have to something being supernatural, something that's not of this world. He's saying that this baby that comes will bring wisdom from God will bring a divine insight into what it means to be human. That's, that's far above any human wisdom. This is someone amongst us, yet not like us, bringing divine wisdom and comfort. A wonder of a counselor this child will be, who helps us navigate all of life's complexities alongside of us. But he's not some philosopher or a therapist. He's not a teacher. This one who comes won't come with some new teaching to help us do better. So he will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. 
In just a few verses from here, this same name refers to God himself. But the text is screaming at us, this baby is not a baby. This baby is God. He's not just a child. He's God himself come to us. He is God who is this child. The one who lives in unapproachable light will come into our darkness and become for us the light of the world. This child who is promised is a wonderful counselor, a wonder of a counselor, because he is God Almighty and he is everlasting father. The people this promise is being spoken to had been promised an eternal king who would rule forever. This child will be that for us, an eternal king. But did you notice that king is not the emphasis here? In this problem or in this promise to people walking in darkness, the, the royalty of him isn't emphasized here. That would have been the expected promise. But instead we're told he will be an eternal father to us. This means he comes to comfort, not to conquer. He comes to protect. He comes to provide. The last title, he will be called Prince of Peace. When you think prince here, think more administrator than son of the king. Um, a prince, think of someone who's in charge. So this prince who comes, he's someone who is in charge. And what is he in charge of? Peace. Some of you are familiar with the Hebrew idea of shalom. That's what often gets translated as peace. Shalom means wholeness. You might think of it as the way things are meant to be. Uh, a whole earth, a whole human inside of you, a whole community, a restoration of things as they were created to be. So what does this child, who's a wonder of a counselor, who is mighty God, who is an everlasting father, what does he come to administrate? What is he in charge of? He's in charge of shalom. He comes to provide peace and wholeness. This is why the promise ends the way it does. His government and its peace, its shalom, its wholeness, its flourishing will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. This child will come and usher us into shalom. He will administrate shalom, a world of fairness and justice. He, he comes to take into himself our sin, our oppression, our darkness. The rod of the oppressor will be broken over the back of this child. And in exchange for our brokenness, he administers back to us wholeness. He receives our oppression. He receives our sin and restores to us our humanity. The name of this child is Jesus, a wondrous counselor who is mighty God, our everlasting father, the prince of peace. One commentary describes it this way. By taking into himself the sin and oppression, the horror and tragedy of this world, he was able to give back righteousness and freedom, hope and fulfillment. Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? Only then can we know the benefits of God with us. 
We cannot have the light, the honor, the joy, the abundance, the integration that he offers any other way. So there is an element of Advent where we are acknowledging that we are yet in darkness. Most of the reason that story I began with feels like such a parable to me is because so much of my life feels that way. So much of my life feels like I'm in an unexpected blizzard. I'm so disappointed sometimes that I'm as old as I am and I'm still scared and confused as often as I am. So much of life seems to be filled with pain and fear. We are yet in darkness. Advent gives us space to acknowledge that. But it also reminds us that the light has come. And what is ours to do is to hold on to the light, to be rooted and grounded in it, that we might find the shalom, the wholeness that the light came to administer to us while we wait for the light that is the Christ to come again. So in these coming weeks where it seems like the whole world is slowing down, I invite you to acknowledge the darkness in your life, to name it, to be, to be honest about it, maybe even to share about it with someone else. And then you respond to that by fixing your eyes on the light of Christ, whatever that might mean for you. We find something intentional that we can place in our lives that serves for you as a tangible reminder of the light that has shone into the darkness, the presence of Christ with you, that warm gas station light breaking over the horizon. Isn't it so fascinating that Christ, who is the light of the world, how do we celebrate his birth every year? We put lights all over our houses. I don't, I don't know what kind of ritual you need. I don't know what kind of Ebenezer, what memorial you need. And if, if the darkness is so deep in your life that there's nothing you can do, could you, could you get in a car? And could you drive down the street and see lights that people have put on their houses for who knows why and say that is what Jesus has done. He has come and he has brought light into the darkness. It's the promise of peace, of wholeness, and ultimately of presence. God is with us. The darkness is deep, but the light has yet to come. Will you find places, people, things that can serve for you as tangible, concrete reminders that the light has come and will come again? And if you can't find that in your life, if the darkness is too deep, if you can't even get in the car, could you, could you keep gathering with Christ's body each Sunday? Because here we experience the presence of Christ in the presence of each other. And here we receive concrete evidence of who our God is and what he's done for us each and every week. Each and every week, we hold up the light that is the Christ and we have concrete, tangible reminders of who he is and what he's done. So every week we call our minds to the night he was betrayed. Jesus took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it. And then he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember what I have done for you. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you eat in remembrance of me.
Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.